I started out as a public health nurse, so definitely it's something we talk about. I mean, maybe I have more re- more thoughts about it than the average person because part of like one of the ways that medicine often gets, uh, you know, it speeds up the the process is when we have epidemics, right? Mm-hmm. When we have like you know. Um, we know way more about the immune system now than we did before the days of HIV, right? So it's like we mostly develop things unless there's a lot of money in it, like boner pills. You know, we mm-hmm. were going to develop either way. But we develop – unless there's a lot of money, we develop technology and drugs in response to this. So a lot of things like, oh, well, yeah, this was developed as a result of polio. This was yeah. developed, you know. So I don't know. I mean I've done like – I worked in Haiti after the earthquake um, and like during the first years of the uh, – HIV AIDS epidemic and it kind of feels similar to that like all right well what's gonna yeah. what's next okay you know you feel like you're the you're kind of the first person into the building when something <laughs> happens are you everybody else starts running the other way and you yeah and I'm finding I don't know maybe it's just getting older but I'm like having less patience with people's like just like kind of like oh let's talk about the most alarming thing I'm like why yeah you know combination of nurse and comedian i guess i'm like all right let's just joke about something else because you're just making yourself insane also we're not meant to have this much information about things that aren't happening to us it's terrible for our nervous systems where do you uh where do you land on gallows humor oh i am i am yeah the uh so i had two partners in a row pass away and so I am like the queen of gallows yeah. or king or whatever I am. But uh, yeah, uh, sometimes again, <laughs> the non-gender specific yeah. monarch. <laughs> right. Exactly. Thank you. I'm going to yeah. miss that. <laughs> this is something that I'm kind of dealing with myself is like where where the line is drawn as far as like social media and stuff, just because mm. it's like at what point at what point is this not useful? At what point is it actually kind of like harmful to be joking about these things? Right. Well, and it's also different to joke about your own specific situation and to joke other, because then you're just impacting the circle around you or, you know, maybe if you're joking about it publicly, but it's not, you know, it's your thing to joke about. So that makes it, you know, more difficult in general. I mean, and, it's not like we've developed social media that allows for nuance. It's kind of the opposite. So. <laughs> is, uh, is being a comedian useful for uh, the, the career of being a nurse? Oh, yeah. And, well, it's a... They, they play off each other? They play off each other. I always tell people uh, that if you want an arts career, become a nurse because it's the greatest day job ever. Yeah. You know? Um, it's so flexible and there's a bunch of different... You know, um, like when I started to need... You know, I got older and needed health insurance, so I... Uh, for like 10 years, I freelanced, you know, I just did like, also New York's very easy because you can like take care of rich people who've had plastic surgery on the weekends. And, you know, I mean, like there's a lot. Um, so it's actually very helpful to have like so many different options. Like now I'm working full time in the mm-hmm. school system, you know, but that also means like I can do a, a tour on my spring break. So I was tell people go, if you have any science proclivity, nursing should be your day job if you want to be an artist. Um, and then definitely the other way around. No. I mean, I work in a high school now, and people are always like, oh, your kids think you're funny? And I was like, no, of course, they're <laughs> high schoolers. They don't think I'm funny at all. They could not possibly think I'm less funny. Are they, are they shocked when they find out you're a comedian? Yes, totally shocked. <laughs> and they don't even, it's not like they cover it up, like, oh, yeah. really? That's interesting. They're like, no. But on stage, are you funny? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it is unexpected from the standpoint of, like, you do not expect your high school nurse to also have that career. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is, is the goal or has the goal been to move into that full time, the comedy thing? I mean, I was full time for a while, uh, yeah. you know, uh, not at the moment. Um, I guess if there was some. Well, I love this job. I love this current job and a little bit fell into my lap. And it's like the perfect mix of it's a perfect job for me. So uh, as long as this job, I'm going to stay with this for a while, uh, as long as the funding continues. So, um, you know, I guess if I got a. Know what somebody would offer me. Sure. Nobody's offering me my own TV series. So then, yeah. you know, Barack Obama isn't knocking on your door for Netflix specials at this right, point. Right, right, exactly. So, um, was a single Netflix special I could do it still. So I'm not, you know. You could do that and keep your day job. Yeah, exactly. It's a win win. Right. Was it just untenable to be a full time comedian? No, it wasn't even so much untenable. It was, I was doing like different things. And the biggest thing was insurance. Um, I had a, uh, a knee replacement that went mm. really about as wrong as a knee replacement can get. And uh, I was like septic and almost died. Jesus. And then the problem with that is that makes you more susceptible to other to yeah. like, cause it creates the bacteria, the brilliant bacteria make this microfilm on the, on your hardware. Uh, and that's really, really hard to get out of that, get that out. Yeah. So um, I've had two other surgeries, well, really four more surgeries 
um, including one where they like took out the entire replacement and left it out for five months. So you didn't have a knee at all. Not you, me. I didn't have a knee at all. Yeah. How, how, do, how does one yeah, it's really, function in life without Well, they put like cement in it. Um, uh, and then you kind of just drag it around for five months. Uh, yeah, it was really fun. Uh, it actually made a crunching noise when I would like drag it oh, behind God. me. Uh, and I can remember my assistant being like, Okay, so I don't know why your hairs aren't isn't standing up on end, but my hair is standing up on end. Yeah, like like nails on a chalkboard, right, kind of. Exactly. So that just became, and then also this job worked out perfectly, and I was like, okay, well, yeah. I can still do all this, and also the benefit is actually in some ways it's improved my comedy career because I'm not taking jobs just based on the money. So it used to be if a college show, if a college emailed me, even though I could tell like all the warning signs of a terrible yeah. situation are there. I would have to say yes because it's, you know, it's a big chunk of money all at once. Pay your rent right, you know, in that one hour um, that nobody's going to be at or that they didn't advertise or that they don't understand that they have a different idea of what kind of comedy you do or whatever. Um, or they have you perform in a gymnasium or something where nobody can hear you. You know, I can yeah. I can follow the red – I can uh, listen to the red flags and my gut. So I was doing some searching around and, and it looks like you have a speaker page too. Yeah. I get the feeling that any kind of corporate gig is probably the worst possible comedy gig. <laughs> well, I don't mind it because I'm kind of – because I started doing it really early in my career. Um, the corporate thing. Yeah. yeah. But it's more nurses, right? So yeah. nurses already are like want to talk about, you know – you know, what body fluid have you had on, yeah. in your hair today? So You're bringing some to the table that 99% of comedians don't have, which is like very specific, <laughs> specific targeted subject matter. Yeah. At one point I was doing – I did for a long time the Nurse Family Partnership, which, you know, Barack Obama has mentioned it in like 10 speeches. Mm. It's a very effective um, maternal child wellness program that I worked <sighs> in for a decade. They had brought me in a number of times to speak at their conferences. So how many times do you have somebody who's – like, not only did a job similar to you, but yeah. did your exact job, and was also a comedian. Like, that was actually a really good gig yeah. for a while, until everyone had heard, like, the whole thing, you know. And also super fun for me, because I knew what people had gone through, you know. Uh, like, I had 15 minutes on trying to find a bathroom when you're doing home visits, you know. You know, I, I assume, like, when you come, go to more, most corporate gigs, they're not necessarily ready to laugh, but nurses probably have a lot of steam to let well, off. Uh, I have done a 7.15 a.m. show, which I like as Farmer's Kid. Like, that's, oh, that's awesome. But uh, that's still a lot. What, Made, what was the circumstance? Uh, it was a three-day conference okay. um, in which the people were doing, uh, the nurses were going out and they were going to do an all-day field visit. So they were like, oh, well, we need something to wake people up. And I'm like, you know, comedy actually isn't the right thing. Yeah, coffee perhaps would <laughs> yes. be a good choice. Yeah, Coffee or me. And I've done even... When I was doing a lot of home visiting, so it's just general home visiting. Yeah. Um, so it could be even like child protective services or whatever. So uh, it was an all-day training on child abuse, on what is and what isn't child abuse. Um, so people were – for mandated reporters. So people were literally watching videos. Is this child abuse? No. Is this – and then at the end they're like, and now make us laugh, Kelly Dunham. <laughs> I was like, you know, when people are like have a heart yeah. club gig, I'm like, no, nah, you haven't had a heart gig. Well, how did you get into nursing? Um, so – uh, I, when I, well, long story, like I was a nun for a while. Yeah, we'll, uh, right. uh, we'll reverse the tape on that in a second. <laughs> so I was a nun and then I left the convent Yeah, and then I was like, kind of like, hmm, uh, I think I need to do something that will I need to go back to school. And so, um, I had a friend who was like you, who had been a nurse for years. Uh, and she was like, if you go to nursing school, I promise you personally, you'll never regret it. And mm. I thought about it when I was younger and stuff too. It just, um kind of on the way the convent got what's so fulfilling about it that you like somebody could you know definitively say that well she was talking specifically about it's very very portable nursing is very portable right like um uh when i didn't want to do it full-time when i wanted to do mm. comedy full-time uh i could do it four days a month you yeah. know um it's just so and also there's flexible yeah and also there is something really beautiful about you know, I mean, working with high school kids definitely keeps you honest, but just ge in general, right? Like, oh, wow, somebody didn't laugh on the stage, wow, wow. And then, yeah. you know, somebody's like, oh, well, you It know. puts things into perspective. Right, right, yeah. exactly, where you don't can't get your head quite so far up your ass. So, um, so nursing just seemed like the best choice, and uh, I, there was a, you know, I was living in Philadelphia, so there's lots of great places to choose from. So, uh, and then I got a full scholarship um as like an older student so that worked out kind of perfectly that i hadn't finished college before D does it scratch a similar itch as being a nun 
Uh, yeah, when people are like, I don't understand how you went from being a nun yeah. to a you know a queer nurse. And I'm like, that's not even a right-hand turn. Like, that is, like, <laughs> literally just the continuation, you know. The logical uh, conclusion. Yeah, there was somebody <laughs> – I was performing in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I was, like, looking in back, and somebody came in while I was performing. I was like – that person looks so familiar, but I just can't. And then they came up and I heard their voice and I was like, oh, Sister Carmel. Hi. Hi. Yeah. It was a former Sister Carmel. She also a lesbian nurse. You understand why people would be confused about I that. I mean, though, theoretically, right? yeah. I mean, <laughs> anything feels like a left turn from a nun and then you're just like piling stuff on top of that. Right, the nurse right. thing, maybe not so much. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and also there's nurse nuns. I mean, but there's also yeah. lots of lesbians nuns too. Yeah, so yeah. maybe not like gender. Well, nuns are so gender queer in so many yeah, ways. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, like, you know, perhaps... Being a lesbian is what drives some of them into being a nun. Well, I think a lot of folks are just if, – if folks are struggling with sexuality, yeah, exactly. they're also maybe like looking for a place where it isn't such a huge issue, right? Yeah. And also for some women – I mean I'm not saying for all, but for some women who are in life circumstances where they're never going to be able to – like where the only choices are to marry a man – I mean, convent living could be great. Yeah. You know? Maybe Jesus will be that man. Yeah, Jesus, he's a man that never asked for a hand job, you know? But uh, <laughs> unless you count prayer, <laughs> yeah. So, so what what attracted you to nunnery in the first place? So I was is more, nunnery. Is that the right? Yeah, uh, more or less. Very, yeah, like, that's a, yeah, that's from uh, yeah. That uh, uh, no, it's um, the, the, the nunnery? Canterbury Tales. Canterbury. Tales. Yeah. Um, prologue to the Canterbury Tales. So I was working in Haiti. Uh, I had dropped out of Bible college. So I was actually raised evangelical Christian. Okay. Uh, dropped out of Bible college. B- Bible college, but not with plans to go into the covenant. No, because okay. I was like an evangelical Protestant. Yeah. So um, kind of like a board again. Yeah. Know, up board you again. switched denominations. Yeah, yeah. Which mm-hmm. they barely know how to do that. Like from, you know, Catholic <laughs> to uh, board again. That's like an easy one. But board yeah. again to Catholic, people are like, oh, we don't really have... Uh, like, let me look it's so at funny because like I'm a Jew, so it's all just yeah. like you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. It doesn't seem like a far jump it's for not me. So but. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and you know, conservative religion is all really, yeah. really similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but very siloed. Right, but yeah. so like you know, I mean, I feel like when I have a I have a coworker who was a really strict um, Muslim, and the first time she really trusted me, she said was when she heard I was a nun. She was like, Yeah. So you understand, you're not going to be a person who doesn't understand why my parents are pushing me in this way. It's funny it, that I mean it is similar in some senses but also they're they're so positive that everyone else is going oh, to go right. to hell. Oh right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean they're almost that's a huge yeah. thing to have in common but it doesn't make you want to get together and have a party. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, so I was living and working in Haiti. Uh oh, and well what happened was a friend said like I, I had no idea what I was doing next and a friend said like, "Oh, I have a friend uh of a friend who's working in Haiti and they said they that the um, the school for kids with disabilities that she works at needs somebody to help do recreation in the afternoons and you don't need any special skills. And I was like, that's me. I have no special skills. <laughs> uh, so I was living and working there and that was in 1989. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was after the Devalues had been kicked out and there was like one coup after another. You know, it was close to, in some ways, even to a civil war. And so um, the, they sent all the kids home to the provinces. So I'm just kind of living at this school in Haiti with like nothing to do and off kind of, uh, you know, also, you know, couldn't really, like, like walk around outside. It was in the middle of kind of a lot of political problems. And so uh, somebody came to the school who was volunteering uh, at the Missionaries of Charity, and he was like, hey, you want to go home for the dying? And I was like, oh, sure. You know, I was enough of an adolescent to say yes to the, you know, for the sake of pride. Take it as a challenge. Uh, and so I met- It didn't, I mean, it must have terrified you a little bit at the time. Uh, of the nuns or of- did you say the home for the dying? Yeah, isn't that a nice name for Is, hospice? Yeah. yeah, I mean that. Uh, I you know, I just being around dying people, people is not a skill everybody has. No, a lot of people are terrified of hospitals, right? Let alone hospice. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that does seem logical that I would have been scared of that. Yeah, like I said, you're the first person in the building. <laughs> in the right? Fire. Yeah. I mean, like, clearly. The, the the through line in all this is that you wanted to help people. Right. Right. Yeah. And that was what really attracted me. I mean, you know, Haiti is just such a mess from, you know, from yeah. being, you know, literally blackballed, right? Like the actual meaning of the term meaning, you yeah. know, nobody would trade for them after, you know, the revolution and um, colonialism and just missionaries have just made such a mess there, really. Just very special. And so to see these nuns from around the world um, working together, you know, um, and kind of living a more like simple life, and you know, I 
I went in the door, and this little tiny sister who was carrying a 60-pound bag of concrete on her shoulder, I was like, oh, Jesus must have sent you um, because he knew he needed extra help. And then she, like, so she could take my hand, she switched the bag of concrete. Like, she just rolled it down herself and then back up. And I was like, oh, wow. So, and then the coup cat, you know, there's, like, one coup after another. The kids didn't come back to school. I kept volunteering there. And, you know... I kind of fell in love, not with a specific nun, but kind of like with all of them. What specifically, though, because, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, logical conclusions you could have made from there, you know, whether um, any sort of volunteer work. Obviously, like, going into that life is a huge commitment. What appealed to you about that specifically? The huge commitment part, you know. Um, yeah. so, so the Missionaries of Charity, right, there's, like, tons of Catholic, of kinds of Catholic nuns, Episcopal nuns. And almost all of them are shrinking. Uh, the only orders that are growing are the conservative ones. And I think that's partly because women have more options now. Um, but also, like, if you're going to be a nun, be a nun. You know, like, yeah. I can I can just wear a frumpy dress and uh, carry a mismatched pocketbook, you know, and just on my own. I don't need to be a nun to do that. Yeah. It is um, nice to have a uniform, though, in some ways, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that is. Uh, and that's what uh, habited uh, nuns. The other one, and I don't know if this is still true, that are still growing is um, – you know, Bevilacqua started those Sisters of Life. And if you see them, uh, they're like, so they're all young women playing the guitars in parks. Okay. If you see young nuns yeah. playing a guitar in New York City, uh, guaranteed that's the Sisters okay. of so Life. Okay, so they're like the cool nuns? Well, they're actually, they're anti-abortion nuns. Oh. But I don't even know how that keeps them busy. Like, how much anti-abortioning can you do, you know? Yeah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah, so, apparently, yeah. 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 Um, overall, was it a good experience for you? Uh, it's, I, I mean, No. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're not doing it anymore, so... Right. But. No, I mean, it was a very... I, I Volunteering them was one thing, and I volunteered yep. with them for three years, four years before I joined. Um, but that's very... Their life in the convent was very different, which they told me before I entered. But I was just like, oh, no, I'm sure I can handle it. But they just had this very um, specific idea of what obedience was. We're just supposed to do whatever they... You know, whatever your mistress said you're supposed to do, you're supposed to do it, you know, without complaining, no mm. matter how dumb it was or whatever. Um that specifically, you know, they said that I walked like my shoulders were angry and that I had too much self-esteem. That was their big complaints about me, uh, which I think is, you know, fascinating. So there, so after a year and a half, um, like I was supposed to be a pre-aspirant, like the very, very first beginning for a month. And then, but it took me a year and a half to get through that phase. And um, it was like failing preschool 18 times. Uh, so I, the sister was like, um, I started having some health problems. And the reason I left is... We were clean. They still have a, a women's shelter on 127th Street in Harlem, and we cleaned it every morning. And we didn't use uh, disposable menstrual products. And there was a tampon sitting on a dresser. And as we were cleaning, I just took the tampon. I was like, oh, I'm going to borrow this. Obviously, nobody borrows a tampon. That yeah. didn't make any sense, right? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know um, what this is turning me. I don't know what I want to be, but I know what I don't want to be. And that's a person who steals a tampon from a homeless woman. You know, so it just wasn't making me into the person that I wanted to be. I would never say that it was a mistake. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, in, if you're doing the math of it, it was a mistake. But also, I'd still be wondering, you know, if mm -hmm. I hadn't tried it. Um, you know, the time to make big, huge mistakes like getting married to the wrong God or whatever, you know, is in your 20s. Um, I'd always be wondering. Uh, but also, I felt like it gave me insight into things and that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. How long did you do it for? So I was a full-time volunteer with them for like four years and yeah. then a year and a half in the convent. Okay. So. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you're getting into something like that, you expect it to be a lifelong commitment, right? Right, yeah. So, I mean, did, did it feel like you had kind of failed oh, in a sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I felt like I didn't fail, but I failed God, you yeah. know? Um, That's exactly so, who you don't want to fail. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh yeah, and also it's kind of anticlimactic. Like, I'm going off to join yeah. the Missionaries of Charity. I'm going to be a nun forever. A year and a half later, hi, I'm back. You yeah. know? So it definitely felt like... And that took me that took me a minute to get over that feeling of disappointing God. But now I feel like I feel really secure in... There's been so many situations in my life where I'm the right person for mm -hmm. the spot that I'm in, that I don't have that feeling. I mean, I don't really know that I believe in God anymore, but I do have a feeling of like, oh, I've got the right space that I'm in. Um, and that helps a lot. The tampon story is really interesting because, you know, I, I, like, I feel like in my own life, and this is probably the case with most people, there are very few actual moments you can point to. 
one specific thing that happened that really, you know, set a path in motion? I mean, obviously this was something that was building up, but you feel like it was really, you're able to pinpoint that kind of moment? Well, I mean, that's the moment for the story, right? That's a really good question. I think, you know, I didn't tell the tampon story probably for the first, I even had one person show about it and didn't include the tampon till probably... Maybe I'd been on the convent like 10, 12 years by that were time. You, were you like especially ashamed about that story? Yes. I was especially ashamed of it. And I think also, I mean, a little bit I thought it was too much information. I don't know. In 2001, would I have been talking about that, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah, I think I felt ashamed. Yeah. And it just seemed like, yeah, maybe it's probably just shame that simple. You know, it's the, the sort of the AA idea of bottom, right? I mean, yeah. like when people talk about hitting rock bottom, they always have like that story. <laughs> like that is like, <laughs> it's hard to come up with something more damning than being in a place where you're literally stealing feminine hygiene products from a homeless woman. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the, what was your first day of not being a nun like? Well, I remember, so I said, do you want me to leave? Uh, or do you guys think this is working out? And they're like, let us think about that. No. <laughs> so uh, my mistress. So, so you so you kind of put it on them to some degree of like, I mean, obviously you were impl- heavily implying that you were not in right, it anymore. Right. But you wanted to at least give them the final say. Well, it had been a, such a struggle. They were, because I had volunteered with them for so long. I mean, it was clearly such a, like, not a fit at yeah. all. There, and, there wasn't a lot of bad blood, though? Uh, Well, I don't <laughs> think bad blood, but... um. Yeah, when I left, uh, somebody was telling me about somebody else who had left the Missionaries of Charity, and they said, yeah, and they were, like, driving around in a van looking for uh, her, the person who left. Mm. And she was like, I noticed there's no vans driving around looking for you. And I was like, no, that's not the case. They were very relieved. My mistress looked like – I still see her face. She was, like, so relieved. It's it's funny because it's like, you know, you – theoretically, the nun should just be like, yeah, we want everybody doing this. Like, this is – it's really important that somebody is doing this job and, and, like – you know, and theoretically, they're supposed to feel like failures if somebody drops out. Oh, that's yeah. I bet they never thought of that. Uh, <laughs> literally, never thought of that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, if you think of okay, so this is a sister who has been raised in this entire. You know, she'd been professed. She'd been a nun for probably fifteen, sixteen years. Yeah, and everything, every decision is made on the whole like you obey whoever's over you, right? And so there's no questioning, and so. When she was kind of promoted to the point of, which it seems like a demotion if you ask me, but to the point where she was um, a formation mistress, right? So she was uh, having to train the new nuns. And, she, you know, the, your mistress has to actually live with you and everything. Mm. Like, she doesn't even get to live with the professed sisters who are all her peers. So when you, by the time you get to that point, you haven't seen a lot of people talking back. And not that I did a lot of, like, fuck you, but uh, definitely, you know... I wasn't acting like the folks around me. And I can imagine for her. I mean, one time she lent me her prayer book for something and it had like her little, like her like little note to God. And it said like, oh, please, you know, um, help Sister Mercy. Um, She scares me so much. And, you know, I'm like, I used to call myself the koala bear comic, you know, like people have like a big round face. And, (laughs) you know, I'm not a person that scares people really. So I was like, okay, that. For me, I, first of all, originally I thought it was a, like a mistake, and then now I'm like, I think she meant for me to read that. But um, there was something going on with her, right? Like that was a very hard situation to be trying to train people in this absurd way, and it only kind of really works if everyone's on board. If one yeah. person is like, nope, you know, I'm not doing that crazy thing, it it kind of it doesn't work that well. <laughs> yeah. There were specific instances where, when you were literally just saying, no, I will not do this thing that you're asking of me. I mean, me. It, not like that, but like the one, the thing I talk about that kind of most dramatizes is, so, you know, um, the Catholic idea of offering things up, that somehow that you're suffering and by embracing your suffering, mm-hmm. you help Jesus on the cross, right? So... Um, we're talking about, she's like, sisters, you know, if you really love Jesus, you'd offer up, uh, your suffering by only going to the bathroom once a day. Um, and I, that sounded like she was kidding. That's, you yeah. know, that's not even seems all that biologically possible. And it's also like, like one of the great pleasures I assume as being a nun who does not have a lot of other things going for you. Yeah, exactly. And I started laughing and I was like, oh yeah, call me sister Mary bladder infection. And that was like, you know, that was even though then I tried to be like, okay, okay, I'll try and do that, um, which yeah. I don't think that's actually something I really tried to do. But I wasn't meaning to be like, fuck you. I just 
couldn't believe it, you know. So they, so they were like, it was her job to create these challenges. Yes, that's an yeah, that's a good way of saying yeah. it. Uh, yeah, it was her job to like basically. It's it's like a Saw movie, you know, <laughs> just coming up with creative ways to torture you, basically. Yeah, I mean, kind of. I mean, some of it was kind of natural in our life, but yeah, um, yeah I remember when we were so we'd have a half an hour of recreational. Well, recreational reading, but you're just like reading, you know, like yeah. a spiritual book. You weren't reading the New York Times or anything. And she told us not to put the book on the table, that mm-hmm. we should hold it in our hands, you know, and just like even offer that up. Yeah. So like something you might even enjoy, you had to do it in a way that makes it miserable. It's like an affront to God to just enjoy something outright. I don't know if they would say that exactly, but I think they would say, like... You have to be reminded of the suffering in right, some way. Yeah. yeah, that it's all about the suffering. And, you know, with the Missionaries of Charity, they also bring a lot into, you know, this is how poor people suffer, and all that's true. Yeah. You know, me holding up a book instead of putting it on the table. Yeah. I don't know how much that does for the average person. I guess the one thing I would say about that is, and this clearly is not a problem for you, but it's a problem for most people, is that, like... I, I was discussing this with um, a coworker before about you know the, about the response to the coronavirus, and we we really have to compartmentalize to get through life, right? I mean, you like if you, all you thought about was all the people who were suffering all the time, you just you wouldn't get anything done, right? So you know, I, I, I maybe maybe there's something <laughs> to be said for like you know a reminder that like there are other people who don't have it so good, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Uh... I don't know. It goes back and forth, right? Because at what point does that start? You know, like this, um, the research about how showing kids pictures of mangled people in cars doesn't make them better drivers. You yeah. know, they used to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I asphalt. do think there is something, yeah, there is something to be said for yeah. that we have way too much information and actually our nervous systems are not prepared to deal with threats that are not a threat to us. And it makes us actually immune. Yeah, I also feel like living in New York City keeps you from, you know, it's pretty hard to remember, to forget that there's some Times article about the people who have the garages that drive directly. Like they have a car that drives right into their apartment. And people are like, why would they want that? And it's like, so that rich people don't have to look at poor people. That obviously. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why all those like dystopian movies take place above the city, you know? They just, all all the super rich people live up there. Uh, So, oh, I I did want to get back to that idea of... um, of what what your first day of non oh, right. life was like. Uh so so she took me to Port Authority. Um and she's just kind of tapping her toe and going, "Okay, where do you want to go?" And I was like, I, I was like, "God damn, that, that that's like a movie moment right there, right?" <laughs> yeah, and she was so elated, but she was trying to hold it down a little bit for me. And also like she was totally impatient, like she had to get back for prayer or sure. something. And um Standing in front of the Greyhounds. And I was like, okay, well, my sister lives in Philadelphia. I guess I'll go to Philadelphia. Um, I don't know if I'd even called my sister and told her I was on my way. Which, she had a baby that was on his 15th. That was th- she had a three-month-old and a toddler. Yeah. Um, like, your sister just leaving the convent was, like, the least yeah. helpful thing, you know. Um, uh, so, I remember I took the Greyhound, and then I had to take, like, she lived in the suburbs, so I had to take a little... Um, regional rail and i stopped and i bought a diet coke because i hadn't had a diet coke in a year and a half a reader's digest because i really wanted to read um and they're just that i think that's all there was at the 7-eleven or whatever i love that your idea of going crazy at the time was a reader's <laughs> digest and a diet coke yeah that was what i'd really missed so yeah. i mean i can remember watching people walk around with the sunday new york times when i was a nun and just be like like almost salivating you know i was i way more missed reading than i was at my sister's house and i just kind of cried for a really long time and i think the next day my mom was visiting her i remember i had left some stuff in her basement that included like a pair of white pants i don't know it was the 90s so i guess we had what i was thought it's i was gonna wear labor day yeah. yeah yeah exactly um and i was like all right well this is good i have uh something to wear for my job interviews you know? <laughs> it was just like it was like the, those movies where somebody you know it comes out of like a coma or like a time <laughs> capsule or something where you would just like you would like this whole like block of your life <laughs> yeah and it was really especially because i had so much shame about it about about leaving well, about leaving and then about being a nun at all. Oh, really? Yeah. Because also I kind of came out. I hadn't been, you know, living a queer life. I didn't I didn't know I was gay, but I didn't know. 
I mean, I knew there was something going on, clearly, yeah. but I didn't know exactly what it was. Um, and then after, like, two months, I can remember I was just walking down. I was walking from the bus, and I have this really clear memory of, like, oh, I'm gay. Oh, 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 that explains a lot. Um, what, so I kind what, of – What? <laughs> like, what, what triggered that? I think I'd been – you know, I had been really involved. I lived in uh, Miami before yeah. um, in the, you know, early 90s, which was in on Miami Beach. And yeah, so I mean, I there's went. no gay people in Miami, so you wouldn't have gotten a hint there. <laughs> uh, well, no, everyone was dying. So yeah, it was kind yeah. of like that. There was so much of focus yeah. on that. Nobody – you know, there was no time for a coming out moment, yeah. I don't think. And um, also I was kind of waiting to be a nun. I mean, my gender has always been like, this is how I looked basically when mm-hmm. I was, you know, five years old. So this has always been my gender and I've kind of always identified with that, but not thinking of it necessary in terms of sexuality. But I think, yeah, by the time I do remember when I was a nun, there was this moment where, so at night you don't turn on the lights, you just use candlelight. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all, the last thing you do is you uh, sing this little song while you stand around a statue of Mary. You know, and the missionaries of charity, most of them are pretty young and I think very beautiful. And I was just kind of looking around at everyone's faces. And I was like, I get to spend the rest of my life with all these beautiful women. And like, there was a point afterwards where I was like, I don't, maybe that wasn't what everyone else was thinking, or maybe they were, but that's not what we were supposed to be thinking, yeah. you know? So, so because I kind of came out so immediately after that, um, kind of into, you know, like kind of this radical queer nation of Philadelphia, I feel like I thought that I couldn't tell people or that it was too weird or that something. That you had been a nun. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it was also like, a, you know, I was young. Like now a year and a half of my resume, I could, I'd figure out a way to put around it. But there's a whole year and a half missing off my resume. You know, it was a very uh, – I, I cut out a, a cartoon from The New Yorker. It was a guy, you know, interviewing another guy. And he was like, are you – Am I a team player? Are you kidding? I was in a cult, and uh, <laughs> I crossed out cult and put convent. <laughs> so you're walking down the street. It has bolt of lightning. Was was it a relief? Was it did you was it make you nervous? What what was the reaction? It was a relief. It was a relief. Um, I guess there was some nervousness later, but I mean, having such like a long, prolonged kind of such a weird coming out. I feel like it was just like I didn't have a lot of that. Oh, I think maybe what if God hates me? I just never felt. Like that, and I had a friend who um, ran a free clinic, like two, two queer women who ran a free clinic, and one of the things who were from, like, who were had grown up pretty Catholic, and one of the things, and they were like people I would want to be, right? Uh, two queer women who run a free clinic. Sure. That's that's those are my folks, and she's like, you know, Kelly, I don't. All I know is the folks I know who never come out, never love people the way they're meant to love people. Mm. You know, and I figure, you know what? That's true. You can't hold, you know. You can't hold a huge, big part of yourself down and then be yeah. a whole person. That's not how it works. I mean, what, you know, what, what were your feelings on homosexuality as a sin, you know, having come from the convent? Right. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, you can't – like, it was like, okay, well, uh, that just seems like that's probably not – I don't know. I think there's this priest who wrote a book called uh, – what was the name of it? It's basically – it was by the guy who started – Decision or whatever the Catholic uh, mm. gay organization is. I'm forgetting the name now. And his his take on it was that actually that gay people aren't the scourge of the church. They're actually the savior of the church, you know. That um, that not embracing gay people has been like – is what cause, is causing part of the problem, yeah. you know. Um, and I was like, all right, well, maybe we're special instead of terrible. Did that ultimately make you a less religious person? It took me a while to be a less religious person, yeah. I think. But, um, it, but it's just, you know, it's one of those things where you're just like, yeah, this thing that I've been tied to for so much of my life, like, they hate me for mm. who I am. I mean, that has to be a hard thing to reconcile. Yeah, I have a lot of family who's very born again. And originally it was super hard, very hard for my mom, for example. Because um, she was she was dealing with the fact that you were no longer Yeah, nine. it was well, a lot. She, first she had to deal with the Catholic thing and then the nun thing and then and then the queer thing. Right, right. And That's a lot also, to put on a mom. Right, exactly. <laughs> and also I've been living in Haiti like during yeah. multiple coups and, you know, I mean, sure. like it was a lot for her. Um, and I'm the last of seven. Like, you know, she was – she'd been done with parenting for a while. Yeah. So it was hard for her. And But also like I as I watch people struggle with it, I mean, it's actually kind of beautiful for somebody to have a very all-encompassing authority like the church is saying people are bad just because they exist. They're just bad because of this. 
and for people to kind of look closely at their religion and say, like, I, I'm sorry, I just can't get on board with that. Yeah. I mean, I guess ideally they would then, like, leave their church and form a new gay positive church, which is actually, you know, I mean, I can't believe how much it's changed even in the last five years. Uh, two Saturdays ago, a friend I went to Bible college with uh, put on a show for me, like, put together a comedy night mm. at his church. Um, on a Saturday night, like a queer comedy night. Like, it had the word queer in it. It's a Presbyterian church. I mean, where do you land on the whole religion thing at this point? Um, I don't do anything. Real, I, don't, I don't practice any specific religion. and I'm You need queer nights at churches sometimes. Yeah, and... yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't feel myself, you know, where people are like, oh, I don't have a religion, I'm just spiritual. And I'm like, I don't know about that. I just try not to be an asshole. Yeah. You know? I, I get the sentiment there. Is, do, you, do you have issue with that, or you just don't feel... Oh, like people saying I'm just spiritual? Yeah, or, or I don't know, like, I, I guess where do you kind of land on the idea of just being spiritual and not religious? Well, I mean, whatever, but it's just a different name, right? Like, yeah. if you're like, oh, so you're not affiliated with religion? But there's so many things about, like, people who are very woo, you know, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, well, let's talk about the energy in the room and what we've manifested. That's a religion, too. Come on. And I'm not actually sure, like, what makes... What's different from prayer than, like, okay, if you don't really believe you're praying to someone specific, but... You're just saying, like, oh, an intention to the universe versus, like, just saying, like, oh, I want this to happen, you know? You don't harbor any of that at this point? I mean, you don't – did you have practice or religion or none of it? No. no. Um, I mean, I, I actually have a lot of – like, my girlfriend is like, you are the person who's, like, done the most main, like, you know, conservative religion of anyone I know. Yeah. And unlike most people, you are – nostalgic for it like i watch there's a televangelist that i love joyce meyer you know i remember from when i was younger she's like this yeah kind of like tough looking uh female evangelist which is you know rare yeah um i still watch her every morning so it's like i have an emotional attachment to the culture of it but not as like a practice is it something that you can kind of you could potentially come back to on your own terms or or you, you want to just keep it at a safe distance? I mean, I would say, like, if there was some church that, you know, like, there's so many of kind of churches in New York City that are, uh, oh, yes, we also, um, I yeah. don't know, we also are a co-op, and you can, we do co-working here, too, yeah. you know, like that. That's <laughs> the church of WeWork. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, there's actually a co-working church in uh, Park Slope, of yeah. course. Um, so I always think that, like, oh, I'd like to be involved in something like that. Um but most of the needs that I have and what I was looking for in the convent I have now, like with the queer community, and I do like a – I'll stay like I have a storytelling event that's really – is not really meant as much for – it's performers, but also like uh, every month we have a couple people who don't usually do that, right? So they – I work with them and they get up and tell a story and usually it's kind of their signature – you know, the kind of a story mm-hmm. that's their – like their life story or whatever. Yeah, it's like play um, the hits. Right, yeah. exactly. And um, that – to me, it feels like whatever I would be looking for at church, I can get there, you know? Do you, do you get a sense of what you – what about it you're nostalgic for? I mean the connection. Uh, some of it is just like literally in the way that we're nostalgic about bullshit. You yeah. know what I mean? Like why are people nostalgic about being in high school? High school is terrible yeah. for almost everyone. Yeah, you know? so it could be like Shira or, <laughs> or church. Right, exactly. <laughs> like the Ninja exactly. Turtles or church. Right, right, right. Or Footloose in church, yeah. yeah. Oh, the Footloose in church. Like maybe yeah, it's close, that, that close, yeah. Thing. You seem to have stayed, I mean, in spite of everything, and you've been through a lot, um, have stayed pretty optimistic. Yeah, that is, I can't really account for that. Um, uh, It's a character flaw. Well, it's deep, it's uh, my therapist called, I had a therapist who called it deep biological optimism. Yeah. Um, And I was like, wait, what does that mean? And, And she's like, well, some people think the glass is half full and some people think the glass is half empty, but you're like... Hey, somebody gave me a broken glass. Awesome. You know? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's just, it's like actually, uh, I also, I don't really remember things as bad. So, which is great for. That's uh, like the complete opposite of most people, right? I mean, most people for, for tragedies, people tend to just really compound them. Yeah. Uh, when I had the you know situation where I had, you know, my knee out for five months and then I saw the home visiting nurse and I was like, oh, yeah, she was also nice to me. That was such a great four or five months where just, like, my friends came by and I got to know so many people. And it was just, like, got to take out time from daily life. My girlfriend's 
like, you know you were totally miserable, right? You know yeah. you were, like, totally miserable. And I was like, oh, I don't remember. That's not how I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, it's great for it's great for mental health. Maybe not as good for decision-making. You know, I've definitely done gigs a second time that I was like, oh, I can't believe it was terrible. It was so great last time. And... I mean, it's it's a good quality for a nun. It's a good quality for a nurse. Is it a good quality for a comedian? I mean, yeah, you can do uh, a lot of bad gigs the second time. Yeah, um, but, but I mean just in terms of, like, you know, like the vast majority – of comedians I know are miserable fucks. Right, yeah. That's funny. I had I was having um I was having coffee with somebody for who's from the Midwest the other day and we were talking. We're both like very deep biological optimism. Yeah. And we were in kind of a Park Slope coffee shop and then she was like, Yeah, but don't you and we both she's like, Aren't you kind of happy? And like we both looked around like, Yeah, we are kind of happy. Like like we're almost being secretive about it, <laughs> you know? Um so does that make the comedy harder? How, how does it harder? manifest itself as a comedian other than, like, you know, these sort of pragmatic issues of gigs? I mean, I do think there is a there is a sense in which my comedy is probably angrier, angrier than I am, you yeah. know? Um, so and maybe it, that's it's part a vent of, for you? It's catharsis? Yeah, maybe a little. Well, also, one of the things about – I feel like when people have, like, tragedies or whatever or go through hard times, you know, like severely traumatic times – like they don't actually have a place to process it, yeah. um, and I do feel like there is something about okay, I have to make this funny. There is something about that process, even if it's not, even if it doesn't end up being like a whole, you know, album about, you know, dead partners. Um, the process of trying to make the situation funny that in itself, the process itself, I think, is helpful because it changes mm-hmm. the way. I remember when I was really struggling with my family when I first started comedy. I started taking three by five cards with me to reunions and I just write down things people said. Two things happened. One, they stopped saying so much bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And two, it made me, because I was constantly looking for that, for the laugh part, it just really helped me not get so focused on whatever silly bullshit line that people were giving me. It was a way of processing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a way of processing and and because I'm searching for something, not getting so mired in it. Yeah, you almost you almost have like a distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Do you need to distance to, to really start processing tragedy as comedy? I think it depends. Which is, you know, that's a bullshit answer, of course. No, but I mean, uh... I, I, obviously, like, <laughs> there's going to be a gradient here. Uh... <laughs> it was a big question. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely seen watched other people where I thought, like, ooh, that's too soon. I think for me, when I realized there was too uh, too soon, right? Like my first partner passed. And, I, you know, and that was 2007, so I wasn't as good a performer as I am now. You know, I was still learning in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, well, I mean, always, but uh, what didn't work on stage was that I was too worried about the audience's reaction to it. That um, they would be put off by you discussing it? Yes, that's what I thought I was worried about. That's what I was worried about. What is more dangerous is that people are too, like, too like, oh, you're so sweet. I just want to hug you. And they yeah. want to hug instead of laugh. That's actually more of a problem, usually, in most situations. You can't be funny if you're pathetic. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. yeah. I mean, or that's a very tiny niche. Yeah. You know, there's a few <laughs> people, but, <laughs> but it's not a large one. Yeah. Um, so that partly. But because I was so worried about them, I couldn't kind of just be in the fun and the joke of it i think in order to perform it for sure you have to have come to the place where you can throw that out and not be as attached to what the reaction is yeah do you find that your own needs often get kind of lost in the mix when you're helping others is is it hard to like be nice to yourself certainly historically that's true um I mean, as I've gotten older and kind of more secure in different things, yeah. right? Then I have, there, I just have more, you know, and I don't um, have more. Like I have more uh, of the capacity to, like, just take a step back from things. Yeah. Um, and you know yourself better. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm getting crabby. Yeah. That's, you know, I just need to sleep more or I need to. Yeah. Which I definitely, is probably an issue being a nurse. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it does. I think also when I was younger and really was antsy if I spent too much time by myself, just because I wasn't sure of my own company, that was harder 
because I just never kind of, you never really get refreshed, you know? Uh, but now I'm like, if I have six hours by myself, I'm thrilled. So um, that helps. So. If the opportunity does present itself and, and you're able to do comedy again full time, will you miss this service aspect? Well, I'm assuming if I'm going to do it full time, there's going to be something so amazing happening mm-hmm. that hopefully I'll just be like, oh, well, I can go back to that. I mean, the other thing is I don't feel like, I mean, I, I feel like people have like kind of a, oh, I'm doing it full time or I'm not doing it full time. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're, you know, you're working on your own television show where you're also executive, I don't know. I just feel like there's enough. Um, you can still go help it out at the shelter. Or the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like there's not. Save um, kittens from trees. and Right. And yeah. also I do feel like there is a sense in which um, being present and not being an asshole. There's like things you can do in that way too. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. I mean, obviously like, you know, there is a sense in which like comedy is a service and, and, you know, and you're helping people, but, but you know, if you really devoted so much of your life to it, I mean, they're clearly, they're not the same thing. Right. And yeah, I mean, I try and do, you know, like I, I spoke at this at Hiram college last, I don't know, in February. And, um, I did a presentation. What the presentation they wanted me to do, they were really up for it. I'd do something called Laughter at the End of Life, which is about uh, – it's a you know, presentation. It's got a PowerPoint and everything. Christ. About <laughs> – yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, and I thought, oh, you guys know nobody's going to come for this, right? Uh-huh. It's a, a school that's focused on all their health sciences students are also narrative students. So they well, all – What was the pitch for you for Laughter at the End of Life? Uh, like, they they emailed me. So No, but I mean like what was their description? Like, oh, what, like, what, what does laughter at the end of life mean? Um, so it was like uh, Kelly Dunham talks about, you know, the intersection between tragedy and comedy okay. and how your patients um, might talk about – might make you laugh at the end of their life or might – something like that. Um, it, was, it, done, it was done artfully. Okay. And, I, and I have a description of it too. I'm just forgetting what it yeah. is right now. Yeah. Um, so it's like a slideshow and it's – you know, it has some research base but it's also a lot of like – and then my partner said to me, you know, um, and then like, okay, what is this uh, thing of – and it was a Tuesday night and it was freezing cold and there was 300 people there. Like people had driven from medical schools, you know, like or, or the yeah. area. And I was like, well, you guys – Ohioans are gluttons for punishment, clearly. Sure. sure. And the person who had brought me in was very gracious and she's like, you know, Kelly, if you need me to like take you out of here. Um, I'd also spoken at three classes that day, including one class where they had read my article about my first partner who passed away who used assisted suicide um, to end her life. And they just asked me questions for 90 minutes about that. Um Really good questions, you know, but uh, 90, 90 minutes. And she's like, Kelly, if you want me to remove you from the situation, like I was just answering questions and listening to people afterwards. Um, and I was like, no, this is part of uh, – and I said something about this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And she's like, well, that isn't what you pay, we pay you for. And I was like, oh, no, you couldn't pay me for this. This I do because I have these experiences and people need to be listened to. You yeah. Know? So that is a way – and it does make a difference. Like when I did the Moth main stage, which, mm-hmm. you know, there's like 5,000 people there and um, they actually don't let – they well, they didn't let me. I don't know if they would have let other people, but they didn't let me go talk to everyone afterwards. Uh, they're like, no, we go back to the green room. That's what we do. <laughs> Lock the door. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize. They were so sneaky about it. I didn't realize that's what they'd done. Yeah. I mean I have to say I did not feel – you know, I don't – I kind of – I'm enough of a Midwesterner that I'm like, oh, I'm emotionally drained. It's like, no, I mean yeah. emotional draining, that's not really a thing. You, th- right? you thought they were looking out for you though to not let you go out and talk to people? Or? I assume, yeah. Okay. You think they're no, looking no, out no, for I'm them? Just cur- <laughs> no, no, I'm just – no, no, I'm legitimately curious of what the reasoning Yeah, that is. would be my guess. Yeah. Uh, or also, I don't know if people – people are funny about assisted suicide. Hilarious about assisted suicide. Was, was that – that like that's a specific thing was when, when were you comfortable talking about that in front of a, a, a audience? Well, that ended up being um, was that the, that wasn't the first time, was it? Oh no, okay. no, I'd been talking about that for a long time. I had a show. She put the meds, the assisted suicide meds, in chocolate pudding, even though you're supposed to put it in water because she's like, the last taste in my mouth is not going to be yeah. just like water. Yeah, you, um, know, you could break the rules a little bit. Right, right. Well, the problem is it makes it hard to absorb. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I had a show called Pudding Day, and that was something, um, you know, that n- actually when it, I first wrote it in 2008, nobody was wanting to hear that at all. I think, I feel like if I brought it out now, people would be more interested. I don't want to talk about assisted suicide, you know. Why, why the change? 
Um, I think people are more open to talking about it in okay. general. And Just I think I'm, shift. yes, also I'm a better performer, so yeah. it would be less awkward. Yeah. Um, the pudding thing would, is what people would be offended by now. <laughs> the whole Cosby. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, were you ready to talk about it? That ended up being kind of very close after because it was a pretty public thing. Yeah. Um, like my partner was this very – she was like known. She started uh, Big Bottom Burlesque, which was like kind of the first serious fat women's burlesque group um, or kind of like you know nationwide known yeah. or whatever. Um, and so like she was very kind of beloved by a community. She had a lot of people supporting her and so it ended up being uh, pretty – yeah, you know she had uh, funerals in five different states. So the funeral was, or or the wakes were almost like your first performance. Yeah, 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 and you also have to kind of temper it. But uh, yeah, are you, are you a little funny at a funeral? I'm actually a good funeral MC. Yeah, but there's there's jokes. So somebody had asked me, like when people are like, ask me why I end up doing weddings and funerals. I'm like, because I'm like queer secular clergy. That's why. <laughs> But I did uh, emceed a suicide funeral, which people did as an open mic. I do not know why people do suicide funerals as open mics, but I have done it a couple of times. Um, Open mics are bad enough as it is. Right, yeah. I mean, also, (laughs) I I guess the idea is that it's some kind of catharsis where people have a chance to get up. And and I've seen it done where it's like, oh, I think probably this helped the people in the room. But at the – I remember one of my friends asking me, like, how did you know that the room was ready for this joke? Because – so we finished before time, and so I said, like, um, for the first time in all of queer history, n- people, we've run out of things to say, um, and everyone laughed. And my friend was like, how did you know that you could make that joke? Because basically I just had to tell people we still had time. And she was like, how do you know that you could make that joke? And I was like, I guess it's an instinct because I don't know, you know. I mean, that wasn't really going to go wrong. People may have maybe just not laughed. Yeah. But. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>